0: Welcome to the Return to Truth Podcast, defending the Bible's message on things people don't like to hear. I'm your host, Joshua Cretchen, BTH from Prairie College in Three Hills, Alberta. My hope is that through this resource you will grow in your confidence to explain and stand firm on what the Bible says when you are confronted by questions, doubts, and clever arguments. So now let's heed and join in the call to return to the truth. Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. This is now episode three of the Return to Truth podcast, and I just want to begin by thanking all of you who have taken the time to listen to the first two episodes and have engaged both in that way and also Uh, in the world of social media. Just appreciate you taking the time to dive into these important issues with me. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about suffering. So, of course, not a pleasant topic, not something we really want to think about, let alone uh, go through, but nevertheless, it's a pervasive theme throughout scripture, and so it's important that we understand what scripture has to say about that. But with that being said, I do want to just clarify right at the beginning that when I say we'll be talking about suffering, I am specifically talking about suffering defined as persecution, that is, suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus. And so the purpose of this episode isn't to walk through how we respond to various trials, whether that be uh, sickness or just pain in general, but specifically What are we to make of and how are we to understand the purpose, the reason, the outcome of persecution in a Christian's life? So with that clarification in mind, uh, where we're going in this podcast, we'll start by talking about the question of necessity with regard to persecution. After all, this episode is titled, Do You Have to Suffer to Be a Christian? So we'll tackle that issue. Then we'll go on from there to talk about what is the purpose of persecution? Okay, what is the outcome that is uh, being brought about through these things? Then from there we'll talk about, okay, then what causes persecution? Why does it come? And then after that, towards the end of the podcast episode, we'll deal with a few miscellaneous questions that also go along with this topic. So that's where we're going in this episode, but first I do just want to give a little intro as to what inspired me to talk about this topic on this particular episode, and so I'm going to share a story that's been really uh, influential in shaping my thought around this issue and something that actually helped form the thesis for one of my papers this past semester at college. And so on a December night in 2019, Some friends and I drove to Calgary with the intent of handing out some hot chocolate and doing some street evangelism. We divided ourselves into three groups, we prayed for safety, and then we began to walk around, look for uh, anyone we could find to share the gospel to. But hardly a minute had passed when suddenly I heard this voice behind me, and I turned to see a tall, aggressive figure approaching me. Now, it quickly became evident that he was high on some drug just from the way he was acting. And he seemed to actually have thought that I made accusations against him. So he must have been hearing things or something like that. Because I was just, uh, at that point, walking in silence. Uh, But, so yeah, he approached me, like, uh, pointing his finger at me. Saying, like, what are you saying to me, man? And when I didn't know how to respond, he then punched me in the face, and broke my glasses in the process. So now blood was rushing down my face because of the way my glasses had imprinted on my cheek, and so my friends took me and quickly walked me back to the car. It took a while to clean up my face, but, you know, the adrenaline kept me in relatively good spirits. But at the same time, I do remember thinking... At least now I have an excuse. And by that, I meant I had an excuse to decommission myself from participating for the rest of the night. You know, it wasn't my first time uh, trying to, or attempting street evangelism, but at the same time, I was never fond of it. And I disliked it straight up because it made me uncomfortable. And I would say it made me even more uncomfortable than my injury. Now, on this episode, I'm not going to try to uh, debate the merits of street evangelism, whether that's a valid method or not. My The point I'm trying to make, though, is that I demonstrated an attitude of escapism. I was purposefully looking for a way to get out of a practice that made me uncomfortable. And then, once I faced that physical hostility... My resolve suddenly died. I had gone into that night very motivated, but then suddenly that uh, that motivation was killed when this event happened. Now I will say, that aggression I faced, like being punched in the, in the face, it did not result from the gospel. I wasn't uh, sharing the gospel to this man, and so this event was not persecution. So I, I can say that was a straight face, so don't make a martyr out of me for this. Uh, but nevertheless... Through that event, I did realize how ill-prepared I was to face opposition. And so the argument that I want to start off this episode with is that unless we believers confront this idol of comfort that we have, our resolve, our Christian resolve, is going to die in the face of hostility and persecution. Now, Admittedly, some people do just throw around the word idol without giving real thought as to whether that's an appropriate designation. So uh, let me clarify what I mean when I say we have this idol of comfort. First, we should note that Jesus instructed his disciples to count the cost of following him. You can read about that in Luke 14, verses 25-33. And while it's no stretch to say that following Jesus can cost you everything from family to wealth and to even life. And so certainly, comfort is a part of the cost that comes with following Jesus as well. And now, in days when persecution was a little more heavy on the church, it was of course then much more natural to count the cost before following Christ. But, in our present time, when the cost doesn't immediately seem so high, then we can take the name of Christ without you know, undergoing this radical transformation of life that truly converting to Christianity implies. See, if we don't approach Christ with the mindset that following him requires us to re- surrender our right to comfort then when discomfort comes, it will readily lead to abandoning the narrow path. You know, I'm not saying that items or activities of leisure are bad in themselves, but when we begin to feel entitled to these, then it becomes apparent that God has been displaced as our true object of worship. And so I would say that entitlement and displacement are two tenets of idolatry. And so on that December night, I felt entitled to rest and my desire for comfort displaced my resolve to serve God. And so this is why the idol of comfort must be confronted. We need to undo this disconnect that we have between discomfort and discipleship because the reality is that the two go hand in hand. Now uh, you might say, "Okay, but do you? Does that really have to be the case? Do we have to uh, suffer and undergo this uh, discomfort of following Jesus in order to be a true disciple?" Well, let's look at what Scripture has to say regarding this question. And so, the first verse I want to tackle to here is in First Thessalonians chapter three and it's verses two through four. And so, Paul is uh, writing to the Thessalonian church. He hasn't been able to see them for a while, and he's a little uh, worried that their uh, faith hasn't held firm, that their own resolve has uh, died out through uh, the times and the experiences that have gone on since he's been able to be present with them. And so uh, this is what he now says to them in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2-4. We sent Timothy who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. So again, he sent Timothy over to them out of this concern, it's like, okay, they've undergone all these trials i have heard of, have they stood firm? And so he sent Timothy uh, to both, you know, check on them and to encourage them through that. Then he goes on to say, For you know quite well that we are destined for them. That is, we are destined for our Thessalonians he's addressing here, we're destined for these trials. And then he says, In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And so, the way Paul is talking about persecution and suffering in this passage is in terms of destiny, that this is an inevitable thing that is going to happen. And notice, it's not just him, not just him as an apostle who is going to suffer persecution, but the church at Thessalonica, and by implication, the, all the churches that he ministers to. And so sometimes I feel like we have this tendency to think of the apostles as these legends, these extraordinary uh, and unusual heroes who uh, went through intense suffering, and held firm to the faith as a way to inspire us, but not necessarily as a picture of what our lives are going to look like. But the picture painted by scripture shows that the apostles were not considered these legends, these unusual heroes, but rather they were examples to follow. And that's why Paul talks about these trials and persecution as the destiny of the Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that we invite persecution. Again, I'm not telling you to go and be super obnoxious, do anything you can to get beat up or reviled for the sake of Christ. That's not the point here. You don't invite the suffering. You don't invite persecution. But scripture does tell you to expect it. And so, uh, one other verse where this is uh, clearly portrayed is in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. And in that verse, uh, Paul and Barnabas are going around to the churches they've established, strengthening them, giving them uh, reminders and instructions. And they say there in Acts fourteen twenty-two that it is through many hardships, through much tribulation, that we must enter the kingdom of God. And now, I want to emphasize that this suffering that he's talking about, it's not salvific, and so he's not saying that this is how you will be saved. Once again, salvation is the result of grace through faith and nothing in addition to that. So, no, in the sense of salvation, you do not need to suffer for that to come to pass. But nevertheless, we have to consider the inevitability language that scripture uses, and I think a good way to think of it is to picture the narrow path that Jesus has called us to walk as being lined with flames. And so, yes, you enter through the narrow gate and are walking on the narrow path by grace through faith. But the nature of the path we're on as Christian disciples, followers of Jesus is one that is marked with suffering and really Persecution and suffering for the faithful Christian is inevitable if you live long enough. So, do you have to suffer to be a Christian? No, but you will. Now, of course, that's an unsettling truth, not really something we like to hear. We'd like to be able to follow Jesus without it costing so much. But the reality is that Well, you know, grace is free, but discipleship is costly. And you know, we need to be better at arming ourselves with this mindset, going into life expecting that these kind of trials are going to come as we follow Jesus. We can't keep feigning ignorance regarding these things, and we can't just keep doodling in our Bibles thinking that this is the real picture of discipleship there. No, discipleship uh, is rough. It's costly. And it goes much, much deeper than our cozy, comfortable devotional times. But okay, now, why is it that suffering is so inevitable? What purpose does it really serve? Why does this have to be part of discipleship? And well there are uh, a few reasons that scripture gives as to why uh, persecution and this kind of suffering for the sake of the gospel comes to pass. And so I'll give you three reasons. The first one you can find in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, and it talks about how Paul has this desire to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And so in a real and a unique way, Undergoing these trials uh, as a Christian, namely for the sake of the gospel, has this way of uniting us with Christ in a more significant way. Now, I do believe that idea can be taken too far, and it can lead to that uh, almost eagerness uh, to be martyred because you just want to get close to Jesus, and you find one example of that in church history with the church father, Ignatius, who uh, was being transported to Rome in order to be uh, fed to the wild beasts, so to be martyred, and he was writing letters uh, during the time of his transportation telling people, don't interfere, I am going to do this, and one thing he actually said is, and I quote, let me become the fodder of the beasts by which I can attain God. I am the wheat of God, and I am ground by the teeth of the beasts so that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. End quote. And so, yeah, Ignatius can seem a little crazy to us when we hear a quote such as that, but while we might, you know, just automatically think, whoa, that's extreme, like, st- veer away from that immediately, at the same time, he is onto somewhat of an idea that there is a special union that we have with Christ when we undergo sufferings. And why? Because Christ went through these same sufferings. He was rejected by men. He was spat upon. He was flogged. He was tortured and he was put to death for the sake of his uh, God-given mission. And so when we go through persecution, we are brought to close to Christ as we share in those sufferings and he shares in these sufferings with us as well and so number one purpose of persecution of this kind of suffering is union with Christ the second purpose that I want to highlight is this idea of transformation so yes of course when we uh, come to Christ we are coming as vile sinners in desperate need of mercy. And, you know, there's no other way to be saved apart from admitting that and saying, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, But when we do come to Christ and we receive this righteous credit from uh, Jesus on the basis of faith, nevertheless, we are not then enabled to stay in our sinful condition, and go on living wickedly as the rest of the world does. We are uh, then called and empowered to be transformed, to become more like Christ, and to become more godly. And so, you know, we often quote Romans 8.28 as kind of a feel-good verse, and that verse says that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And then he explains why that's true, actually, in the next verse. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so the reason we can say that in all things God is working for good is because all these things, good, bad, the ugly, the suffering, God is using it in order to conform us to the image of his son. That is God's purpose. He has predestined us for us, and it is going to come to pass. And so we can take courage in the trials that we face that we are being formed into Christ's image through these things. And of course, we also get uh, other verses, such as in Romans 5, where it talks about, we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. I think I have the order right on those. Uh, James Uh, chapter 1 verse 2, consider pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And so, again, we like to think of these virtues, whether it be patience, uh, love, joy, we almost want to imagine that we will pray and then they'll suddenly bubble up in uh, in our spirit and, hey, I'm joyful now, hey, I can love all of a sudden. But You know, typically that's just not the way God is bringing about these virtues and these uh, fruits of the Spirit. Virtues are developed through experience and even more specifically, they're often developed through trials. That is how God is seeking to bring about our transformation into a godly and holy follower of His. And that's just, inescapable. That's the reality of how God is working, and therefore we can approach these trials and these sufferings, this persecution, with an attitude of thanksgiving and joy because we know the good that God is working through it. They're not without purpose. They're not for nothing. And so transformation is the second purpose of suffering that we see in scripture. Now the third one, is discipline, actually. Now, I know we tend to think of persecution as something that's completely anti-God, something God doesn't uh, send or use, but that's not, once again, that's not the way Scripture depicts it. And so, in Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 4 and 7, he talks there about how, to that point, the audience of the letter to the Hebrews has not resisted sin to the point of bloodshed. In other words, in their struggle against sin uh, and in seeking to follow Christ, they haven't yet been martyred. They haven't yet experienced that kind of suffering, but nevertheless, when they think about uh, the suffering they have under God and the suffering that is yet to come as they continue in their struggle against sin, he advises them to think of it in the context of what God has said in his word in the book of Proverbs, how you should... Not despise the discipline of the Lord. For as a father disciplines his son, so God disciplines those he loves. And he actually tells them to endure hardship as discipline. And so as much as we want to separate and divide persecution from God, keep those ideas as far away as possible, and never imagine that God would send or use these things uh, for us, nevertheless... According to scripture and according to that text we just read and referenced in Hebrews, persecution is being used by God as a way to discipline his true children. And so what he says also there is, if you don't endure discipline, you're illegitimate. Every child of God is going to endure discipline. And so what are you supposed to look for in your life then to determine if you are truly legitimate It's persecution. It's suffering. It's this hardship. Because that, according to the text, is how God disciplines his children. Once again, for the purpose of conforming them to the image of Christ, who also uh, suffered and went through intense hardship. And you know, we also see this idea in Luke chapter 6 in one of Jesus' sermons. There in Uh, verse 22 he says blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you and, and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the son of man but then by contrast in verse 26 he says woe to you when everyone speaks well of you for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets and so once again it's not that suffering is going to earn your salvation, but whether or not you suffer for the sake of the gospel is a good test of whether you are true or false. And now this idea of discerning between true and false is going to become more clear as we look at the cause of persecution. How is it that whether you're persecuted or not can be a test of whether you're a true follower, and a faithful follower, we'll see that when we look at what actually brings persecution to come to pass. So once again, I think there are three things we can say regarding what the cause of persecution is. First of all, in an ultimate sense, we can of course point to demonic hatred as the, the root of the persecution that we experience on earth. Of course, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we're told that We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and and powers and the rulers of this present age. And then again in Revelation chapter 12, we see that the authority and the power behind the earthly kingdoms who are persecuting and conquering God's people is Satan, the dragon. He is the motivating and empowering force behind the persecution that we do experience on earth. So in an ultimate sense, yes, demonic hatred is why uh, Christians get persecuted. However, that's not typically as explicit as we like it. People don't say, I follow Satan and therefore I hate you, the Christian. That's just not how it works itself out uh, in our experience. For example, in the early church history, when they were experienced persecution, they weren't. Just accused, you know, of being believers, but rather they were called atheists because they denied the Roman pantheon. Really, they actually explained it as those false gods you worship are actually demons. But nevertheless, they were thought of as atheists uh, for this. They were also called cannibals because of how the outside world understood the Lord's Supper uh, communion. They were also called incestuous because of another misunderstanding with how Christians were calling each other brother and sister. And they were also thought of as a subversive, antisocial people because they wouldn't participate in these festivals that once again involve sacrifices to these false gods. And so the accusation brought to Christians wasn't explicitly your believer in Jesus and therefore we hate you and we're going to kill you. Even while we might see that as the ultimate spiritual root of persecution, it's going to work itself out uh, in different ways and in different terms. And so when you're put on trial for your faith, don't expect the accusation just to be, you are a Christian. Expect to be called subversive, even haters of humanity. Because that's more accurate as to how your persecution is going to be portrayed by the world. So, besides the ultimate root of demonic hatred of persecution, we can also say that persecution is going to come not strictly because of faith. Again, we've talked about the idea, not just because you're a believer. Persecution is going to come because of obedience. So this is what Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, the wording of that verse uh, is quite important because he says not just those who believe in Jesus Christ are going to be persecuted. He says everyone who wants to live a godly life. It is in your pursuit of godliness that persecution is going to come. Now, why does it take obedience and not just faith? Well, because we know that faith without works is dead, whereas faith with works is alive. So if you have this general belief in Jesus and God, but you know it doesn't really affect your actions, it's a dead faith, and this world isn't threatened by a corpse. By contrast, though, if you have faith and it leads you to action and your faith is alive, and suddenly you become a threat to this world. Not in the sense that you're a crusader who is seeking to bring war about about on this earth, but nevertheless we have to recognize that obedience disturbs the social order of our world, and it challenges this world's lust for power. We've already seen that with the early church, their subversive for not participating in the festivals of the Roman gods, and so they're viewed as an out-of-control people who won't submit and could be potential sources of uh, riots and disturbers of the peace. We also see a similar uh, response to Jesus' ministry by the religious leaders of the day. One reason they hate him is because when he's performing all these miracles, they're afraid. They say that, well, now Rome is going to come away and take away our nation, our land, our temple. It's because they want to retain their own power that they are threatened by the ministry of Jesus and that they are threatened by the ministry of the disciples who will not cease to proclaim the name of Jesus. Now, one example I can see today of a way in which obedience is Kind of subversive to our society and thus viewed as a threat is in the work of faithful Christian parents. You know, we live uh, in a country, in a nation that wants to raise kids in its own image. It doesn't want parents to have this primary role of fashioning their child's values. And you can see that in, for example, the Way schools are prohibited from telling their parents about what their kids might confess in the context of the classroom is their sexual identity. We see it in things like Bill 89, which uh, allows the government to seize uh, children from parents who won't affirm their gender identities. And we can see it even in just general, the discipline that uh, parents are supposed to engage in uh, with their children in a proper way, of course. But nevertheless, discipline is almost equated with a- abuse these days. And so the nation almost seeks to turn children against their parents and against those traditional values by seeing them as, or causing them to see their parents as evil or abusers just because they are seeking to raise their children and discipline them in a godly fashion and then once the parents become the enemy they of course can easily then become servants of the secular world so to be a faithful christian parent in this world is not easy and it it will easily raise suspicion regarding you and will bring about hostility and at this point we don't quite know the extent of the suffering that could come as a result of being faithful in this area. But nevertheless, we must be faithful, even at the cost of this persecution and suffering. Really, that should be our expectation as we seek to follow Jesus and be obedient to him in all facets of life. Now, one more cause of persecution that we'll talk about Uh, besides the demonic hatred, besides the obedience, obedience is specifically testifying about evil. This is another thing that is going to cause persecution, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. See, we often uh, quote the verse uh, where Jesus says, you know, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you too. And so we recognize that being identified with Christ is going to bring about the hatred of the world. But we have to ask, why did the world hate Christ? And well, Jesus hasn't left us without an answer. He said in John chapter 7, verse 7, though speaking to his uh, brothers at the time who didn't believe in him at this point. But he said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works Are evil. So, yes, if the world hated Christ, it's going to hate you too. But it hated Christ because he testified that his works were evil. So, you know, by implication, it's going to hate you because you testify that his works are evil. So, once again, it's not just the mere identification with Christ that brings about this persecution, but it's when you imitate your master by testifying that the world's works are evil just as he did that's what brings about the hatred that's why the world hated jesus and by implication that's why the world is going to hate you you know if you're faithful that is so there was actually one time in uh, my high school years when i had this uh, one friend or at least classmate who was bisexual and he asked me what my opinion Uh, regarding that was. And so, at first I gave him the answer, you know, that the attractions uh, weren't sinful, and I might actually, I would actually uh, change that response today in my view, and I'll do a future episode also on this whole dynamic of action, temptation, desire, talk about some misunderstandings with that. But nevertheless, at this point, when I gave that answer, he said, good answer. And that immediately, you know, kind of made me question my response, because if the world is approving what I'm saying about uh, sin, then there's a problem. Because again, going back to that verse from Luke, if people are speaking well of you, that's how they treated the false prophets. And so I didn't want to leave it at that. And I uh, went on to clarify my belief that certainly uh, acting on these uh, desires, these same-sex attractions was sinful and so after uh that day you know sean and i we didn't uh, uh talk so much and i learned later because he was in my chemistry class at one point uh that he had actually asked the teacher to not be seated next to me because he claimed that i had told him that he was going to burn in hell even though i had not uh Brought up hell in any of our conversations at that point. I had just told him uh, that I believed that these actions were sinful. And so he's avoiding me and raising these false accusations against me because I testified that his works were evil. Now, eventually from there, we did kind of reconcile enough to, you know, uh, get back into discussions and good discussions, discussing the Bible and some questions he had about that. And it's not that I ever apologize for saying that his uh, works were sinful, but for one reason or another, I was given more opportunity to speak to him about these things. But again, even there, it wasn't the fact that I was a Christian that upset him or that uh, made him seek to avoid me or raise those false accusations against me, it was the fact that I had told him that these actions were sinful, that what he was doing was a sin. Then again, you uh, read the Bible, we know that John the Baptist was thrown into prison, but why? It's because he told Herod that it was unlawful for him to have his brother's wife. It was when he brought up the king's sin that he was then thrown in prison. None of his other ministry in the wilderness was uh, condemned or the re- or the cause of him being persecuted and imprisoned. It was when he confronted the sin of this wicked ruler that he was then put in jail. Now, sometimes I think we have this misconception that we can be faithful in preaching the gospel without doing this, without bringing up sin, but... That's just, again, not the picture that scripture paints. We see Jesus confronting the sin of the religious leaders. We see John the Baptist confronting the sin of Herod. And Paul, for example, in Acts 24-25, the reason that Felix is afraid through the message Paul is preaching is because Paul is speaking about things like righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. It's about sin and judgment that offends this world and causes them to fear and see uh, Christians as a threat. So let me tell you, it's not so much you saying that Jesus loves you and died for you that is going to uh, cause you to be persecuted. It's when you can front the sins of the culture and you know some of the most prominent ones in our day: the sexual sin, homosexuality, the transgender movement. Abortion, these are prominent sins and prominent idols in our culture. When you confront those, that is going to bring persecution. And but the thing is you can't avoid confronting those things if you are going to be faithful to proclaim the gospel, because proclaiming the gospel requires you to testify that the world's works are evil. Because apart from this knowledge that they have broken God's law, they have committed Treason against their good and righteous king. Apart from that knowledge, they have no concept of their need for mercy and grace, and they have no reason to turn to a savior who can pay their penalty and transform them and give them new life. So be faithful to testify about evil, be faithful to be obedient to Christ's commands because that is what this world needs. And then expect persecution to come, expect hatred, because that is what Jesus predicted. But at the same time, you can take heart, because he has overcome the world. And so, as much as we are called to expect persecution as our destiny, as faithful followers of Jesus, and it may even uh, look in, in the moment as if the world and our enemies have this victory, In reality, the opposite is true. Because as much as it might appear as if our enemies conquer us in this world, we know that we are victorious through the blood of Jesus, through our faith, and through our testimony about him. So trust that your faithfulness and obedience and in testifying about Jesus is not in vain. Now, there are a few Miscellaneous comments that I just want to use to wrap up this podcast. Now, and the first one is talking about degrees of persecution. So, we have said that suffering persecution is inevitable. You are to expect it as a Christian, you know, through my, again, through much hardship, through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God, but at the same time that doesn't mean we are to all expect the same degree of persecution. I am not saying that all of us should expect to be martyrs. You should be prepared to follow Jesus and pay that ultimate price, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what it will come to for you. We see uh, in different scripture passages different modes of persecution, if you will. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, Jesus talks about how you are blessed, when people insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of him. And so again, we get these insults and false accusations as a means of persecution. If you go over to First Peter, the audience there seems to have been suffering once again from these uh, insults and false accusations, and then ostracization too, because the world thinks it's strange that they don't participate in the same pursuits as they do and in hebrews again we talked about how the writer there said that they hadn't uh resisted in their struggle against sin they hadn't resisted to the point of bloodshed they haven't been martyred yet but they have faced uh the confiscation of their property according to hebrews chapter 10 they have been persecuted uh in some to some extent in other ways and have faithfully stood by others who have as well and so I want to confront this misconception I believe many Christians have that until the whips get broken out or until the swords are unsheathed, then it's not persecution. Because that's wrong. Persecution does not have to come in its worst form for it to be persecution. Persecution. The scripture counts you blessed when you are insulted, when you're reviled, when you're falsely accused, when you're ostracized. Even when you're unashamed to stand by those who are being persecuted themselves. There is honor and blessing in that. And so yes, we can say, okay, we are not being persecuted to the same extent as others, and no, I'm not trying to craft a martyr complex among all Christians. But we do have to understand that scripture does not discount the suffering you go through for Jesus just because it doesn't end in death. So let's give honor where honor is due. Honor the martyrs who do pay the ultimate price. Honor those who stand beside them. Honor those who undergo insult and false accusations frequently for the sake of the testimony about Jesus that they bring. Now, you must be ready to endure to your life's end for the sake of Jesus, even should that mean martyrdom. But be encouraged that Jesus isn't just going to show up once you're on death row. He is walking with you even through what others might scorn as insignificant. Perhaps now you have a question, okay, well, how am I actually going to prepare myself to uh, face these trials? How can I get ready now? Well, the number one thing, and this is what we've already talked about, is arming yourselves with this mindset. Don't keep ignoring the reality of suffering that is presented in scripture that comes with being a disciple of Jesus. Remind yourselves frequently that this is what it's going to cost. And practice obedience and testifying about evil. Be faithful in these things and then trust also that God is going to give you the strength when the trials come. But besides that, throughout church history, a primary means of preparing for persecution in times of relative quiet is spiritual disciplines. Things like fasting, charity, and uh, solitude, spending time alone with God. These are all things that you can and really should practice as you prepare to face persecution because they do a number of things. Number one, they reveal how attached you really are to this world. If you can't uh, give these things up of your own accord in times of peace, then this world has more of a hold on you than you would like to admit. And if you love this world more than Jesus, you are going to falter when persecution comes. And so these spiritual disciplines have a way of exposing that, and that can lead to good and necessary self-reflection. But these things also teach us to live as pilgrims in this world, because they teach us that this world is not our home, that we do not find our ultimate rest or comfort here. While we are on earth, our work is to be the salt and light of the earth. We are called to be soldiers of Christ, and so we are not to get entangled in the affairs of this world. So live your time here on earth as strangers, as if this world is not your home, because until God comes and creates the new earth, it is not. And these spiritual disciplines such as fasting, charity, and solitude help foster this mindset, and thus prepare you to endure as you patiently wait for what is your true home. Now for a last note, I just want to talk about how, as much as we've talked about suffering, pain is not the only tactic that may be used against you in persecution to cause you to forsake and deny Christ. There's this one story about a woman named Uh, Felicity or Felicitas and her seven sons. And I just want to read some of it to you to give you a picture of how this world and ultimately Satan are going to use these different tools to cause you to deny your faith. And so I'm reading in the account at a point where Felicitas and her sons have been arrested. And they've been arrested because through preaching the gospel they've pulled multiple multiple people away from the worship of the gods of Rome and this is being presented before the emperor antonius at the time as an aff- a very an affront to his very rule and his eminence and so the pre- prefect questions them he offers them both threats and promises in order to dissuade them from the faith but they stand firm and so this is what he does next. And I'm reading out of this book called uh, Jesus Freaks, Volume 2. And it's just an account of many stories of those who underwent persecu- persecution in various forms and often martyrdom. And so this is what it says beginning on page 158. From here he, that is the prefect, uh, took a different tack. Very well then, Felicitus, If you are satisfied to die, then die alone. But have a mother's pity and compassion on your sons, and instruct them at least to save their own lives by sacrificing to the gods. Felicitas bristled at this. Your compassion is pure wickedness, and your advice is nothing but cruelty. For if my sons sacrifice to the gods, they will not save their lives, but surrender them to the hellish fiends who are your gods. They would become their slaves and be chained in darkness for everlasting fire. Then she turned to her sons, Remain steadfast in your faith and in your confession. Jesus and his saints are waiting for you in heaven. Therefore, fight bravely for your souls and show that you are faithful in the love of Christ, the love with which he loves you and you him. Woman, the prefect interrupted, how dare you defiantly encourage your sons to defy the commands of the emperor under my very nose? Isn't it better that you instruct them to obedience rather than rebelliousness? But Felicitas knew what she was saying and what kind of death would probably result from her boldness, yet she still persisted. Rather than condemning the prefect, though, she turned to him tenderly and bravely to try to bring him to the truth. Prefect, if you only knew our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the power of his divinity and majesty, you would know better than to try to draw us away from him. And you would stop this persecution. You would know that we cannot curse Him or turn away from him, for anyone who curses Christ and his faithful ones curses God himself, who by faith lives in our hearts. At this, the guard that stood by her turned to her and struck her hard with his fist across her mouth, hoping to silence her. But even at this, she continued to warn her sons against denying their faith and to fear neither torture nor painful death, as these were nothing. ...compared to an eternity with Jesus in heaven. Publius, that is the prefect, had Felicitas and her sons taken away... ...then brought each of the young men back one by one to question them privately. Yet whatever he promised or threatened, none of them would turn from Jesus. Frustrated at his failure, he sent a note to the emperor... ...that they all remained obstinate in their confession of Jesus... The emperor then sentenced them all to die at the hands of different executioners, and that Felicitas would die last of all after she had watched each of her sons die first. Over the next four months, these sentences were carried out. Januarius, the eldest, went first while the others were forced to watch He was scourged with a whip made up of cords that had a small ball of lead at the end of each strand. He was beaten with this on the back, neck, sides, and any other fleshy part of the body the torturer could reach with the scourge, until he no longer moved. Felix and Philippus, the next two oldest, followed. They were beaten to death with rods. Silvanus was tossed down from a great height. The youngest three, Alexander, Vitalis, and Martialis, were each brought out before their mother separately and beheaded. Last of all, with tears glistening in her eyes at both the pain of watching her sons die and the anticipation of soon being with them again before Christ, Felicitus was beheaded with a sword. And so you'll notice that besides the general... Promises and threats that were used to dissuade Felicitas and her sons in this passage. An attempt was also made to guilt her into having her sons deny the faith. Have a mother's compassion and pity, the prefect told her. And so I want you all to be aware that pain or prosperity, if that's the tactic they use, aren't the only things that will be offered to you in an attempt to cause you to deny Jesus, to deny the faith. This world may use the very things that you love so dearly here in an attempt to sway you through guilt and through supposed compassion for those you love in order to cause you and your loved one to leave the faith. But even here you are called to stand firm, to hold on to the truth, That as much as appearances in this world might deceive, heaven is better, hell is worse, and hold on to these realities of eternity, as in all things, regardless of the tactic you seek to stand firm for the sake of the gospel. So, as much as we might want to escape the suffering aspect of discipleship, nevertheless, Scripture presents it as inevitable. This is part of the narrow path we walk as Christians, and we ought to expect these things to come our way as we seek to be faithful to Christ. But we can also know and rest in the hope that great blessings come with these things, blessings such as union with Christ and transformation into holiness and the hope of great reward in heaven for the sake of our endurance. While you may not have to suffer to be a Christian, nevertheless, if you're faithful, it will come your way. And so let's arm ourselves with this right mindset and return to that truth. Thank you for listening to the Return to Truth podcast. If you're interested in getting updates on episodes, or if there's a question that's been put to you that you would like me to discuss on here, You can find me on Instagram at ReturnToTruthPodcast or on Twitter at podcast underscore return. Until next time, let's heed and join in the call to return to the truth.